Welcome to our sixth session of our Lent course, taken from the book If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, by John Ottberg. Today's session is entitled That Sinking Feeling. Matthew chapter 14 verse 29 to 31 says, Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Can you remember a time when you did something for the first time, but by yourself? What was it? I remember my granddad teaching me how to ride my bicycle in the large car park outside our block of flats one summer. He would hold on to the seat while I tried to keep my balance and pedal at the same time. I would tell him, don't let go. Of course he would let go and eventually after repeating this a few more times, he would let go once more and off I went. Concentrating really hard on balancing and pedalling and keeping the wheel straight and of course not falling off but doing all of this all at the same time but after a few moments of cheering and listening to my granddad's delight and encouragement a question would surface in my mind how am I going to stop and get off and when I thought that of course down I would go again it never stopped me trying again and eventually the whole experience of riding a bicycle would become second nature to me. And just as important, I have that precious memory of my granddad teaching his first grandchild how to ride a bicycle. When you are young, perhaps failure doesn't seem to matter or affect you as much as it does as, as an adult. Maybe, maybe. My own daughter, when making a mistake, may get upset about it, but she finds a way to make it right until it becomes second nature. Practicing her handwriting in year one was an entertaining challenge for her. Entertaining to her parents, because Iona would not follow the taught conventions. She wanted to do it her own way. But one day, she found that the taught convention actually worked, and our handwriting transformed in a matter of just a week. But now it has become second nature. She is getting very creative in her approach. And now she can do it her own way and the way she was taught. Second nature has become a creative nature. Children as well, I think, are content to put up with unsteadiness and failing on the way. The problem comes though when we become adolescents and making mistakes can be a humiliating experience, particularly in public. This is why resilience lessons are so crucial for children and young people, so that when they do become adults, they know how to fail well and learn how failure can lead to flourishing. But as we grow older, I think we grow more afraid of failing and I certainly know that I do. We would rather avoid going down than learn those things which need to become second nature. 
Peter was very much like this. His stepping out, like his faith, were uncertain, perhaps a bit wobbly, but he was willing to risk failure for the adventure of trusting Jesus more fully. And Jesus is not about to treat Peter's failure as grounds for dismissal. He takes Peter's faith seriously. Peter has some things to learn, but Jesus starts by rescuing him. Jesus does scold Peter. He diagnoses the area of trouble. But before the scolding, Jesus saves him. Both the saving and the scolding are evidence of Jesus' love for Peter. One of the questions in the book we are working through really struck me, and it said this. Why is it that for some people, failure is energising, while for others, failure is paralysing? We all experience failure, and of course, no one likes it. But for some people, it becomes a kind of goad to push on to new learning, deeper persistence, more vigorous commitment, more courageous hearts. For others, failure produces utter defeat, a sense of discouragement, a loss of hope, a desire to hide, a secret resolve to never again get out of the boat. How we see and respond to failure make an enormous difference to our lives. Those who can learn from it, retaining a deep sense of their own value and marshalling the motivation to try again, become masters of failure management. Now, we're not just talking about musicians and athletes or inventors, but any of us who try at something and fail, but then try again. In doing this, we become masters of managing failure. We see it as it is to be seen, something to lead us on, to keep going until we succeed, until it becomes second nature. Well, let's take a look at another character from the Bible to help us understand that failure in God's eyes. Let's take a look at David, because even though what David did was spectacular, it was redeemable. And of course, we know God never runs out on our failures. From the beginning of David's life, he had a string of success. He was entrusted with dealing with Israel's most feared enemy. He was a great shepherd. He was anointed by Samuel to be king. He was a prolific songwriter, musician. The army and people loved him and he knew that God loved him. David knew what it meant to walk on water. He trusted God and for a long time, everything he touched turned to gold. But then something happened. One by one, all of those wonderful things he had been given were stripped away. David lost his job. He had been promoted from shepherd to court musician to warrior, the most successful officer in the army. But now Saul, the present king, was jealous of him. He started throwing spears at David and he was out of a job. With it, David lost his income, his security. He would never serve in Saul's army again. Next, David lost his wife. 
He had married Saul's daughter, but Saul went to kill him, but he escaped and fled, where Samuel assured David of God's presence in his life. David had to run away from Saul again, and then went to see his best friend Jonathan, who stood up for him. But Jonathan risked his life for David, and so he had nowhere else to turn but his enemies, the Philistines. But, as we know, that did not last very long. So David once knew wealth and power and fame and friends, security, and what he thought was a guaranteed future. Now he was running for his life and ended up living in a cave. All is stripped away. There is nothing material left for him, just the darkness of a damp cave, the sound of your own breath and the beating of your own heart. Have we found ourselves in caves like this? How did you end up there? Maybe you're in a cave right now and not just because of the coronavirus. Maybe it has been the loss of a job, a loved one, financial pressure, dreams about family, life not materialising. Maybe you've lost a friend, or your health will just not get its act together. Or maybe you simply find yourself alone for whatever reason. And for whatever reason, you are in a cave. I remember when I was homeless as a teenager, living in the space project in Hackney, and just lying in my room just trying to work out what was going on with my life. How did I end up in a place like that where only months before I had been living in Dundee with my friends, my family, with a a wonderful church who loved me, cared for me, nurtured me in the faith. And now I was in a room on my own in a hostel for young people in the middle of Hackney in the early 90s. What had happened? Did God forget about me? Did God not love me anymore? Had God lost track of what of who I was and where I was? Well, if you remember from previous sessions in our Lent series, and of course from our own knowledge of the Bible, the cave is where God does some of his best work, and is there that God does the moulding and shaping of our lives. Sometimes when all is stripped away, you discover that actually all you have is God and you discover that God is enough. Sometimes when your worst fears of inadequacy are confirmed and you discover that you really are out of your depth, you experience the liberation of realising that it's okay to be inadequate and that God wants his power to flow through your weakness. By living in that hostel for that period of time moulded me and shaped me into the person that I would become and I would go on to then help others in similar situations because of that experience. And I knew and I know now what God was doing then. Because sometimes the cave is where you meet God, for God does some of his work best work in caves. 
David knew about failure. He spent about 10 years of his life in the wilderness on the run. But he was not entirely alone. He did have some people come to him to form a little community. People who had experienced spectacular failures as well. And at the destruction of their new village, they wept so loudly until they had no strength left. And then, and then, like Superman taking in the rays of the yellow sun to regain his own strength, scripture tells us this. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What an amazing verse. A key to unlocking a great mystery of our relationship with God. That when every other resource was gone, he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, I am astounded at this because I have been there. And it's so difficult, isn't it, to muster the strength and the will to pray to praise and even lift your eyes but somehow we do don't we whether it's a line of prayer a worship song a line of scripture or a piece of psalm it only takes a little to make a big difference but this is where david starts we read about this in psalm 142 the cry of his heart while he was in the cave And it says, With my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I make supplications to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell my trouble to him. God is not put off by anything we say to him, whether it be thanksgiving, lament, complaint or praise. David got all the way down before he could come back up again. But doesn't this remind us that in the whole story of God, that the only way up is down? Jesus came down to bring us up. When we serve God and others, we make ourselves humble in order to raise others up before God. The only way up is down. Go and read Philippians chapter 2. There is so much more of David's life that we can look at on this theme. We know, of course, of his rise to the throne of Israel, being seen by God as one after God's own heart. And yet, of course, lust, adultery and murder become other failures. But so do lament become a part of his story. Repentance becomes a part of his story and restoration becomes a part of his story. For such is the immense love of God. In the cave, David says to God, You are my refuge. He did not know what was to come. But in this moment, when all was stripped away, he makes this discovery. He has a refuge. Sometimes you are in a cave and no human action will get you out of it again. And all you can do is trust God. Finding ultimate refuge in God means you become so immersed in his presence, so convinced of his goodness, so devoted to his lordship, that you find even the cave is a perfectly safe place to be because God is there with you. 
God is there with you. God knows about caves. Peter knew that sinking feeling when he saw the wind and the waves. But remember, Jesus knew that sinking feeling as well. He suffered too in ways we will never truly know. No one ever descended the way Jesus did. But he knew the only way up was down. Life from death, hope out of despair, light out of the darkness, stillness in the storm. Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is alive. The cave is where God resurrects dead things. In whichever cave we might find ourselves in today, right in the back or at the mouth, looking at the stunning sunrise. God does some of his best work in caves. And remember, remember these words, that being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The cave is where God resurrects dead things. The only way up is down. And he will complete this work in you. Amen.